Hi, this is Design Lota, the podcast about life as Indian designers. I'm Angie and I'm Sushi. I'm super excited for this episode because this is the first time we're talking to an actual lawyer on our podcast. Uh-oh. Are we in some kind of trouble? Nothing new. <laughs> what I'm really excited about is everything that we can learn from this episode as artists and designers. So is this episode about how to sue those unethical clients? You won't know until you listen to my chat with Manogya Yeluri, lawyer and founder of Artistic License. Hi Manogya and welcome to Design Lota. Hi Sushi, thank you so much for having me on Design Lota. I think what you're doing with the podcast is just wonderful. It really does sort of open up conversation to a community that needs to talk to each other more. So hi. Yeah. We are so excited to have you on our podcast and we have so many questions for you. Wow, okay. So the first question is what we ask pretty much everybody who comes on our podcast. And we would all love to know, I think, how did you end up doing what you're doing? That is in this case, how did you end up becoming a lawyer in the field of creative arts? Ah, okay. I I feel like this is one of my favorite questions because uh, as freelancers, we sort of revisit the why hmm. as often as we can and as often as we have to. So I actually ended up becoming a lawyer a little inadvertently. I wasn't one of those children who always sort of grew up thinking, okay, I'm going to become a lawyer. I'm going to fight for justice. That wasn't my jam at all. But the law as a career seemed like a very interesting choice because I was actually very, very interested in psychology and sociology. And that's kind of what opened up law to me. And that's how I ended up going to law school. I went to this law school called Nalsa, which is in Hyderabad. And uh, at the end of five years, like a pretty normal graduate from any law school these days, I decided to take up a job in corporate law. So I ended up moving to Bangalore. I uh, joined one of the country's largest corporate law firms. And while it was a really, a really prestigious opportunity, for which I'm still grateful for, I very, very quickly realized that the whole law firm culture and corporate mergers and acquisitions life wasn't for me. And um, that was sort of the first disruptor in my life, because for the first time, I sort of decided that I could start looking and creating a different path for myself. So do you practice a certain art form or is there something in particular that you're very interested in that you've been doing on the side? So I don't necessarily identify as an artist uh, myself, but I grew up with a very, very deep love for music and I used to sing. I say used to because, I mean, I suppose I still could, but I'd rather not find out. But I think I was raised in an environment where creative expression was always considered a very good thing. I think I always wanted to do something in art or music, but I wasn't sure how that was going to come about. And at that point, I heard about something called entertainment law and copyright law. And I realized that that seemed like the closest way to sort of meld both worlds of the law and creativity and the art. I ended up applying for a master's in law or an LLM uh, that specialized in entertainment, media and intellectual property rights law. 
and it was offered by the UCLA School of Law. So I had to move to Los Angeles. And honestly, I think everything sort of changed for me from there because it was like being put into a completely different atmosphere where the kind of conversations that I was having, the kind of community that I was a part of now, it was just a very different approach to how you could look at creativity and creative livelihood. So yeah. It's funny because lawyers sometimes say that I'm too hippie to be a lawyer. Yeah, which is very entertaining. And then, of course, there are lots of like creators, of course, that I come in touch with. And they sort of feel that I'm the most loyally thing they've ever met, you know. So it's very entertaining, yes. <laughs> so what pushed you to become an entrepreneur, uh, in a sense, and start your own consultancy? So again, um, I don't necessarily come from a background of, entrepreneurship. So it was definitely a huge leap of faith. But at the same time, um, it was the kind of leap that I think I was sort of ready to take. So going back to, I think about 2011, 2012, I finished up my LLM and I had decided to come back to India. And once I sort of came back to India, I was very pumped to work with artists and the creative community and definitely sort of optimize everything that I had learned in my LLM because it was all so fresh. But at the same time, the only opportunities that I found at that point were either entertainment law firms, which I wasn't particularly keen on, or you had to sort of work in-house with, you know, massive studios and production houses. And the thing is that a lot of these specialized in in the world of Bollywood and regional films. So it was basically the film industry. And that's quite fascinating. It's not to say that it isn't, but that's not what I was looking for. And I um, started working with a research and policy think tank that was based out of Bangalore. And I was sort of looking, honestly, for a place like the consultancy that I run now. And I don't know what happened. I just remember waking up one morning and thinking, okay, you know what? I'm just going to do this myself. <laughs> wow. And you started pretty systematically. You started with a blog and then you sort of built your following from up there. I, I'm, I'm actually silently chuckling to myself right now. <laughs> it's so cool how you can sort of look back on things and then somehow you see a very, you know, you see a pattern to stuff. But honestly, I wasn't that strategic. Um, okay. I think the thing that helped me a lot was uh, being very clear about the intention behind doing the work that I wanted to do and that I still do, of mm. course. So I was very clear that I wanted to make this kind of information more accessible to the people who actually needed it. So mm. I remember actually this sort of happened during my master's. I was working on, on a project actually at the time where I had to do a comparative analysis between how India and the US were basically looking at the legalities of music sampling. Oh, okay. Yeah, and I really struggled to get information from India. Mm -hmm. um, I honestly got through stuff because I knew people. I, a lot of my friends were and are still electronic music producers. So that was the only way I was honestly able to come up with decent information. And I remember, again, thinking to myself that in spite of five years of law school, you know, sort of having all this exposure, if I couldn't access information that was relevant to the legal systems, then what are people who are actually in these industries, what are they actually doing? Like, how are they dealing with this? 
I think that just mm-hmm. always sort of stayed in my head. So the first step was the blog, because the first step was sort of to create this accessible repository of information. And when I say accessible, I don't just mean it was accessibility of every kind that I could imagine. So it was, I wanted it to be jargon free because I wanted people to understand what was going on. And I wanted it to be free so that people didn't have to stop themselves from accessing information that was important. So it started that way. Um, It was received by the community very positively. And then I guess in almost a month or a little less than two months, I started getting approached by people to, you know, basically be their lawyer. So yeah, and that was that was almost seven years ago. So yeah. <laughs> so was your project Coffee for Contracts? Did that come after you started the blog? When when did that happen? And can you tell us a little about of it? Of course. So Coffee for Contracts is actually a much more recent development. It was something that that I actually started in the summer of two thousand eighteen. Okay. So Coffee for Contracts came from this idea where I wanted to understand why creators were hesitant to use or to access any kind of legal counsel. Was it a question of money? Was it a question of, you know, sometimes being afraid because not everybody finds lawyers approachable. (laughs) Yeah, I think uh, after watching Suits and uh, Harvey Specter yelling and... Yeah, I think we, we get a bad rap that way oh my goodness don't even get me started on (laughs) we just don't want that kind of drama in our lives no 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 please no and you know I mean go to law school and then become a lawyer like seriously no but I totally totally get it I think I understand because I went to law school as well and uh, you know I wasn't particularly fond of that attitude of keeping things inaccessible I didn't like it you know I think with me that's the thing like creating access is always an underlying theme of everything that I do Mm -hmm. with artistic license and it was the same for coffee for contracts so I literally thought to myself okay so if it's money you know then how do we take that out of the equation but at the same time keep the integrity of the conversation so with coffee for contracts as a project the idea was to open things up for the month of july and let people know that if they're a creator or a creative professional or an artist or a designer or a musician whoever you know i mean if they mm-hmm. identify as a creative professional and they are looking for some kind of legal counsel then I would be happy to help them all for a cup of coffee, you know, whenever and wherever we would meet again. So the idea there was really to open up connection and communication from both ends, because I think it's just as important for people on my side of the table to understand what's happening in the world, you know, what's happening in creative circles and to be able to actually you know, do a good job. And I'm guessing you love coffee. I love coffee. I love, I think the selfish um, reasons aside for <laughs> all the coffee that I could get my hands on. <laughs> Honestly, it was definitely about getting to, to meet more people, you know, to sort of expand that networking. And, you know, actually, there's a very funny thing, which um, I don't know if you're aware of, but um, lawyers can't actually advertise in India. Oh, OK. Yeah. Lawyers aren't actually allowed to advertise uh, because law is considered to be a very noble profession. Mm. And it's the same rule with doctors as well, I believe. So honestly, if you're trying to gain connection, make some kind of meaningful connection and just meet people. I feel like that was something as well. I mean, the area that I practice in is a niche. So um, this just felt like a great way to disarm everybody. And of course, I I was going to get coffee. So yes. 
So what are some of the ways in which you work with creatives and what are some challenges that you faced as a lawyer while working with these people? So in terms of the kind of services that I offer, I'm basically hired by my clients to be their legal counsel. And that could mean anything from drafting contracts for them, um, reviewing any kind of paperwork or deals that they get, uh, definitely helping them with you know different kinds of issues and consulting on uh, questions and concerns that they have. And lately also negotiating a lot of deals, which has definitely become my favorite thing to do. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's kind of broadly what I do. So I am effectively you know a lawyer for the artist or the creator who hires me. In terms of challenges, really, um, I think the interesting sort of challenge that I face when it comes to working with creative people is explaining to them the value of what they do and then sort of also contextualizing that in terms of the legal system. Um, And that's a convoluted way of me saying that it's very difficult for me to convince artists and creators that this is something that they should be paying attention to. It's not something that all creators and all designers pose as a challenge, but it's definitely still a problem. And I think that that's one of the reasons why a lot of people end up getting taken advantage of also, because they just don't feel that this is something that they should be concerned about. And it's not like they're not concerned or it's not like they don't value their work. I think it's just sort of fear stemming from the fact that they're getting into a whole new territory and this is just one more thing to overthink. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's the thing, right? We also have to sort of acknowledge the fact that we're all specialists in whatever we do. And I do a lot of workshops as well. Um, Artist rights, education and awareness is very, very important to me. But the number one thing that I sort of tell people who I end up either teaching as a part of a class or as a part of a workshop also is that you will not leave an hour or two hours later being, you know, a legal expert. And that's not the point, you know. The point is to first identify, like, when do you reach that point where, oh, okay, I might need to consult somebody and it's okay for me to do that. Yeah. So you have to make informed decisions. I think that's what I'm really all about when it comes to the kind of services that I provide. Right. And a lot of us don't have this whole context of if this happens, then what do we do? And it's not uncommon to hear of every other freelance designer or small consultancy being exploited by larger companies and clients. To us, it might feel like exploitation. Maybe to them, it's not. Yeah. And a large part of this is owing to the fact that we feel so dependent on these larger lawyered up companies, which we might end up believing that they can break or make our careers. Mm -hmm. So what are some of the things that small businesses and freelancers who have just started out can do to protect themselves from the worst? Wow. So first off, I think I I hear this all the time. People are so are super flippant about saying things like, oh, maybe I can sue them. Mm-hmm. Monognia, can you help me sue them? And I'm just like, uh, cool. <laughs> but more importantly, do you understand the degree of how expensive it's going to be, not just in terms of money, but in terms of energy and in terms of, you know, resources. It's not easy to, to sort of, you know, right. deal with the legal system. And to be on the other end, I completely understand. I largely work with smaller businesses so to say so I fully get it it's very overwhelming when something like this sort of happens but I think that's all the more reason why we need to be as smart as we can when we're handling situations like this and I guess to begin with I think the ground rule always is that you need to get things in writing and 
it's the number one thing that almost everyone likes to sort of push to the side everyone sort of like oh okay you know we'll of course we're going to get it in writing but you know later and that later never comes around and honestly you shouldn't be waiting for things to go wrong mm. to be sort of thinking about oh i wish i had a contract or i wish i had written something down and then you scurry through emails and messages and and you sort of try and piece right. together a narrative exactly yeah it's not the best situation to be in and it can all be avoided very easily if you sort of start off by putting things in writing and it doesn't have to be a complicated convoluted jargon heavy document it can just be a very simple set of conditions mm. between you and the partner the collaborator or basically the company that you're choosing to work with the client that you're choosing to work with right. yeah i think it sort of begins with that honestly i think the other thing also is that you should have a good understanding of what your assets are in the sense that you know necessarily if you're a creator then you're probably in the business of creating some kind of intellectual property or some kind of asset so you need to understand what its value is and then you need to understand that you mm-hmm. have to take certain measures to protect it so i would definitely say getting an nda if you're going to pitch something mm-hmm. i definitely think that that's very very important and you know to to listeners who may not know what an nda is it's basically a non disclosure agreement or a confidentiality agreement as well and the idea is that everybody who comes to the discussion knows that they're not supposed to be talking about this discussion and there are certain other parameters to it so yeah you don't have to lawyer up immediately but you do need to be very mindful of these things hmm so this contract thing yeah like i think most of us are now aware that we have to have some sort of written document but i think this nda thing is something that i've never really thought about and now it makes a lot of sense because when we go to work for some client they always almost always ask us to sign an nda right yeah yeah so but then what about us like we go in with five ideas and they might choose to do one idea and then later they might give somebody else those other four ideas to take forward or they might not call us back at all and they might try and do all the five ideas in house so what about the time and energy we put in creating that presentation absolutely it's a very legitimate concern that honestly more of us should be thinking about because like you said you're sort of walking into this scenario with four or five different ideas um that are novel in many ways you know yeah and the interesting thing about copyright law is that it doesn't protect ideas it only protects the expression of an idea so as long as it's still in that sort of like abstract idea phase mm. no one's really going to be able to say oh this person stole my idea you can't really make that claim this is actually the reason why i think more creators more individuals and smaller businesses need to go with an nda themselves and um, it might seem a little entertaining or amusing to the other side especially if the other side is going to be a big corporate but i mean it's okay yeah you'd rather be that amusing person then you know be sorry later so yeah yeah no i think it's a little badass also <laughs> oh for sure for sure for sure i mean who is this little person coming in asking me to sign an nda <laughs> yeah you sign my nda for us yeah. and then we'll talk you know yeah yeah of course of course it's always very powerful to do things like that totally yeah <laughs> so unlike in art and music design is not entirely subjective so problems do need to be solved and the end product needs to work 
but in india good design is still largely defined by personal taste a yeah. lot of clients who bring designers aboard don't really know what they want and for them it's all about okay is it looking like how i want it to look can you make it pop or <laughs> it has to meet their personal taste and their expectations yeah, so yeah. how can you ensure that a client is on the same page about the deliverables as you are right i think that's an extremely painful problem for a lot of designers a lot mm-hmm. of people who work in the visual arts and design space really and um it's not a problem that i'm unfamiliar with because a lot of my clients honestly come back to me with exactly this issue so the worst case mm-hmm. scenario of a problem like this is that you know basically the designer goes unpaid because the client is not happy with their deliverable right. and when you sort of backtrack a little bit and you start looking at what the pattern of correspondence has been like i think the number one issue over there is a lack of clarity a lack of transparency and a lack of you know just articulating everything clearly if you are sort of mm-hmm. putting a contract together between yourself and the client one way to sort of take care of things over there is to make that an obligation for the client to ensure that a they are coming back to you uh, with feedback in a constructive manner so not just any kind of rando feedbacks like oh i didn't like this but right. like why <laughs> give us a reason so that mm-hmm. we can actually go ahead and make changes based on that so a sort of come up with constructive feedback which in some kind of legalese you could sort of articulate using words like reasonable feedback or you know and detailed set of comments things like that okay. um i think the other thing also is to put a time limit on how quickly the client comes back to you with feedback as well because if i understand correctly a lot of the times a design assignment is going to be split into different um almost like milestones so different disbursements right. of of deliverables and then you know every stage basically mm-hmm. and the idea is that at every stage of the deliverable being sent to the client the client should be given basically a fixed period of time as opposed to they come back to you 20 days later and they're like oh but you remember like i actually didn't like the first thing that you know this stage one yeah which happens which still happens yeah. unfortunately it's not to say that you know you could put all of this down in a contract and this might still happen it's unfortunate mm-hmm. it's unfortunate when it does and that points to a larger systemic issue which is about how we even look at quantifying and understanding the value that comes from creative profession or a creative discipline hmm. i think it also falls on us to ask for the right kind of feedback totally. so not vague things like do you like it but i think it would be very useful for us to have a particular like a feedback form that is tailored to that context absolutely yeah totally so that we get very constructive and useful feedback and not just you know i hate yeah. it i like it make it, make pop, it pop yeah it's like oh all of this <laughs> looks really nice but like can you do it in yellow <laughs> I mean we, we I've got that. Like, can you try lemon yellow? I'm not surprised. No, but I will say that I think you're absolutely right in that that's sort of the obligation on the creative side. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I think it's good to remember that a client an ideal client a perfect client is one who does all their homework and comes to you, you know, fully mm-hmm. prepared and fully sort of uh, open to your creative decisions but at the same time very supportive and you know very exact and they exist i mean i i presume they exist i'm i'm always optimistic so i don't know <laughs> somewhere like somewhere over the rainbow they exist 
but um, the onus is also on the designer to to be that person who says, okay, does this work? Does this not work? And so constructive feedback, I think, is very, very important. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So sometimes you come up with a contract or a less formal version of a contract, but, you know, written document defining the deliverables. Mm -hmm. But then while you're working, you sort of go beyond that. Then what do you do? Do you limit your excellence to stick to a mediocre brief or do you then go above and beyond and hope that the client then pays for like the extra work. Obviously, you can't uh, expect that. But what do you think? You know, I'm definitely not somebody who likes to encourage compromising on quality or excellence, like you mentioned it. But I think, again, the issue revolves around whether or not you've conveyed this to the client, you know. So at the end of the day, I think if you're looking at it from a client's point of view, a client is most likely coming to you because they want you to do something and they have a very limited understanding of what that's going to look like. They, They might have a much more expansive understanding of what use they're going to be putting that to. But at the same time, I think that it's a good idea to have a conversation with the client because it's also about acknowledging the fact that if you are doing something for a client, it's a commissioned piece of work. Mm. It's an assignment, right? right? And do you then get to treat it as an extension of yourself and your skill and expertise? Or does this sort of revised version, does it align with the original brief that the client had Mm. in mind? I think that it's important to have these conversations because you see them in a lot of contracts, you know, Um, especially if you look at um, a lot of contracts to do with um, installation Mm -hmm. art projects also. For example, I've seen contracts for artists who work with festivals like, say, Burning Mm -hmm. Man. And over there as well, the idea is that you have to communicate very clearly what it is that you want to Mm do. And then the other side has to come back saying, this is cool, this isn't cool, you can go ahead with this, Um, maybe take a step back. So I think all in all, you need to be very clear about communication. And it it is very tedious, I'm not going to say that Mm -hmm. it isn't. But it's the polite thing to do. It's the professional thing to do. You, you don't. Nobody should be assuming right. anything before they get into yeah. something. And even between creatives, when we collaborate on a project, sometimes it, it sort of goes beyond the brief, right? It, it grows organically. And suddenly, it's more than just a project. It actually becomes a business idea. Mm-hmm. And then there's a dilemma about whether to register it as, as a partnership or to not right. register it. Or, you know, I think as a creative bunch, we're quite commitment phobic and we're also very paranoid so what can we do to just keep doing what we love as artist friends and without getting into business related disputes Hmm. okay okay well at the end of the day I think the important thing again over here uh, to remember is that you do have to have the difficult conversations you know you have to think about the challenging pain points that might arise there's honestly no sidestepping it it's the same I think in almost any relationship as well, Uh, you can put it aside, you can ignore it, you can focus on everything that's going right. But then if you don't pay attention to the things that could potentially go wrong, that might be bothering you, then when you hit your first speed bump, which you will, because that's true for any relationship, you're sort of left blindsided because you don't know how to deal with it. So as much as collaboration comes from a place of trust and um, community and camaraderie, 
I don't think there's anything wrong in looking at it also as professionally as one can. And it doesn't necessarily mean that we come up with a good idea today and then tomorrow we go, you know, racing to find out which company model we're going to get registered under. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think it has to be that frantic. Mm-hmm. So we've got some time there. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but I definitely think that it's a good idea to to put your thoughts down, you know, and, mm-hmm. um, you know, create like a basic MOU, which is a memorandum of understanding or very simple document where you say okay these are okay for us to do as a partnership these kind of things are not okay okay so we're going to be 50 50 on the cost this is included this is not included all these kind of things you know and I know that these can be very difficult conversations so um, yeah and especially if you're working with with somebody that you know very well who's a friend as I said coming from a space of um, trust and camaraderie the last thing you want to do is bring up this it's like oh okay that these ideas are great so shall we sign an NDA it just doesn't it just doesn't go down too well which is honestly why I then sort of recommend having a buffer or an intermediary person of some kind that could be a manager that could be a lawyer somebody who sort of steps in and kind of can mediate that conversation Mm. I think that's kind of the preventive stuff but if honestly if things are going to go a little haywire then again another thing that people can sort of do is instead of again rushing to court going back to that whole I'll sue you I'll sue you (laughs) um, (laughs) instead of getting that dramatic I think that it might be a lot more peaceful if everybody sort of decides on a dispute resolution mechanism that's a mouthful (laughs) Yeah, but a dispute resolution mechanism, like uh, like mediation, for example, mm. you know, where you choose to figure things out outside of court, essentially. Mm. So, yeah. and all of this you can put into your contract, and that's that's the number one thing that I tell people that your contract doesn't have to sound um, fancy. You don't have to put the henceforth here with mm. you know, and all those fancy pronouns. You can just put a sentence very clearly that says that. <laughs> The parties agree to mediation as a form of dispute resolution. Bas, that's okay. it. <laughs> In a widely connected world with tools like Pinterest and Dribble being used for inspiration, it's easy for designers to hesitate to share their ideas and their work for the fear that it might be stolen, which is a very real problem. But also, what are some of the ways for designers to protect their work against plagiarism so that they don't have to worry about this? So um, the number one rule, again, is you should get into the habit of tracking and recording your creative process, mm-hmm. which is honestly very easy now in this day and age because, you know, everyone's sort of putting videos up on Instagram and you know, there are a million different ways, for example, that allow you to record different stages of the creative process. And the reason that's important is because you can then, if, when push comes to shove and you really need to dispute a claim, um, and you sort of have to tell people that, look, this other person has stolen from me or copied my work. You can basically use this record of documentation uh, to sort of prove the fact that this is how you arrived at this particular piece of work, you know, so thereby putting you in that creative process and then saying that, OK, as a result of this creative process, this particular yeah. piece of work you know, has sort of come out of it. And that's why I own it and I own the rights mm-hmm. over it. Um, 
Of course, there are the standard things like watermarks, which honestly I know are mm. problematic, which I also realized only after I started talking to designers and um, artists. I mean, I remember thinking, you can always put a watermark on something until I saw, yeah, exactly, <laughs> you know, until you sort of realize that it's just not the done thing. It's like self-sabotage. Um, yeah, exactly, you know, and, you know, and it's, it's insane how um, it's so obvious and yet, it completely misses um, a lot of people like me, a lot of people sort of on this side of the discussion, so to say, you know. Yeah. I mean, there have been initiatives also. I think there was something early last year that um, Adobe actually released called the Content Authenticity Initiative. And um, basically what they want to do is they want to sort of hack attribution and how attribution works in the design space. So they want to tie up with different companies and put down guidelines for how creators can be attributed correctly for their contributions. And they also want to make it a part of their software, the technicalities of which I do not know. But that is something that they're working on also. But that still seems like it's in the future. Unfortunately, and I say unfortunately because it's not my favorite thing to do, mm-hmm. I think that sometimes um, the community needs to sort of get together and call a bad thing out. And it's happened. I mean, we've all seen enough instances of this around us. Right. Um, and I feel like especially in the time of social media, it can be particularly effective, you know. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's not my favorite. I wouldn't recommend <laughs> it. But then it is a community-based protocol at the end of the day. So, yeah. But also sometimes we live in such a large world. It's mm-hmm. it's possible for two people to come up with the same concept. And then there's this awkward thing where you find that, oh, this person has come up with the same thing. And then how, how do you deal with that? Oh, my goodness. It's crazy that you mentioned this because this is a discussion that's been coming up a lot more often, which might mean that a lot more people are beginning to face this. <laughs> But, uh, you know, over there as well, this is why tracking the the creative process is very, very important, because the law does acknowledge something called subconscious copy. Traditionally, if somebody were to say, oh, X has copied my work, then you'd basically have to somehow show that X was exposed to my work previously and then decided to duplicate it in some manner. But with subconscious copying, you don't even really have to do that. So it's kind of assumed that there is a remote Mm. possibility that somehow, somewhere in the world, considering the way in which we consume media and and things around us, it is possible that somebody could have subconsciously copied something. Uh, Two people could have just been inspired by the same thing, which then ended up with them having the same thought process and the same workout yeah yeah I might actually digress a little bit um I feel like this kind of points to a larger a larger issue in the sense that when we approach creativity and and things associated with it like for example trying to define what originality means you know or Mm -hmm. inspiration means even sometimes what is art you know um I feel like that was a very deep moment (laughs) (laughs) but it's true I feel like when you when you sort of try to approach these questions in the context of the creative industries it can be very very different from the perspective that somebody is adopting when they look at the same questions but in the context of say policy and law Hmm. And I think that that's the issue as well, because creativity is super dynamic. People are always creating something new and, you know, pushing boundaries. And 
and then you sort of have these systems of law that are meant to protect this extremely fluid dynamic thing and i feel like the law can be dynamic but i sometimes i wonder if we have to play catch up if we need to rephrase our understanding of how the law works even something like copyright for instance not every creator wants to copyright their work you know yeah. because they understand that the copyright system carries its own restrictions you know so i think that it's very important for um people who work within the systems that come up with policies and guidelines and laws to protect creativity so to say they need to really understand how quickly creative landscapes are changing and how quickly those tools are changing and that we have to maybe change our approach to the rules that we're coming up with as well so yeah and we see some platforms like those owned by adobe um, have something called creative commons so yeah yeah we see that <laughs> but i think most of us don't read it or we don't understand it so can you tell us what it is of course yeah yeah totally totally um i don't know if i'm supposed to be uh, admitting this but i think i'll just go ahead with it anyway <laughs> um as much as i am somebody who genuinely loves working with creators and um, you know really likes copyright systems and intellectual property rights and all of that i uh, i'm actually not a huge fan of the copyright system <laughs> oh yeah that's the plot twist um i actually really really like copyleft which is basically a system of protections that was developed sort of like an antithesis to the way in which the copyright system works so the copyright system is all about ownership mm. and it's because of why copyright even started i mean copyright started because the printing press was invented and for the first time in the history of the world it became obvious that there was a machine that could do this faster you know than a human being so then the human being who was creating things was worried about where they would stand in the creative process and that's why the copyright regime began so the idea was to give creators a sense of protection because they got to own their output for a period of time now the issue though is that as the years went by the copyright system is kind of developed into a monopoly of some kind so if you are basically a big company for instance first of all companies can own copyrights over things so it's not just creators directly and if a corporation owns a copyright over something then they also have the ability to potentially control how it's going to be used in a way that can be very chilling when it comes to freedom of speech and expression so copyleft is sort of the answer to all of that the idea is that you come up with creative resources or any kind of resource for that matter and then you put it under the creative commons licensing system they have different licensing arrangements and these systems allow you to share these resources freely with some conditions attached and those conditions are never monetary in nature those conditions are like okay uh we have to make sure that we can share something in the same form but we can't adapt it and we can't modify it okay you know? or in some cases you can just go ahead and share it in any manner so long as you attach credit to the person who originally put it out there sounds fair yeah it's a beautiful system but it's limited again because it doesn't have any teeth 
you can't enforce it. Mm. It's a bit tragic that way. So it's not statutory in nature. You know, I mean, when it comes to things like copyright and the like, you have a mechanism, like a legal structure giving it power. But that's not the case when it comes to copyleft. Oh, that's sad. It is, it is. But who knows? I mean, that can change. Yeah. Maybe you can make that change. I mean, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I definitely think that that's the future, though, because we live in a time where um, we have to sort of share those resources and make them freely available. And this is, again, this goes back to what I was saying, you know, does the law have to play catch up? So yeah, I think the answer is yes. Yeah. Wow, this is like demystifying legalese for creatives 101. I think pretty much all the intimidation to legal stuff comes from what we know about the law and lawyers from TV shows and movies. And it also feels like knowing more means uh, spending more money. So we tend to stay away from legal stuff. I think wonderful things can come from coffee dates between professionals from seemingly unrelated fields. Um, I have found it rewarding working on projects that relate to things like finance or big data. Mm. Uh, Not your classic glamorous design projects, but I think it's exciting because it's always challenging to simplify the complex. Who here would like to hire Angie? (laughs) Well, find me on LinkedIn and let's talk. (laughs) We do hope that with this episode, you feel more in charge. Coming up in part two, what to charge and when to charge. Or if to charge. You can find the complete transcript and references for this episode on our blog designlota.com. Until then, stay tuned. Stay tuned.